0: We started with nothing, and so everything that we have has been worked for, but I still remind myself how hard I worked back then. Um, and you know, people think that you're brash and you're cocky and you're super confident, but I
1: just know my shit. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. I usually do a long, laborious intro, but... I mean, I really don't know how to intro you other than saying, hello, Gordon Ramsay.
0: Mate, I don't need an intro. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm grateful uh, to be where I am today and also uh, to sort of break bread with you in person, that's all.
1: Well, it's good to get you on the show and, and have you in Australia. You actually have some strange connections to Australia. Your uh, Chef Patron, Matt Abay, at restaurant Gordon Ramsay, is Australian, although he's got a bit of an English accent these days. Um, You filmed Uncharted here and you've been filming food stars as well. Tell us a bit about that.
0: Yeah, I fell in love with uh, Australia uh, years ago. And so there's a a sort of um, an amazing melting pot of food here that's untapped. And so I love coming to these kind of countries that's not governed by a Michelin guide or uh, a particular way that these chefs need to be shoehorned into so there's so much more freedom here that's the bit that excites me so yeah glad to be back um food stars was about unearthing sort of uh food and drink businesses that are unheard of from the indigenous tea uh from the northern territory to uh, a groundbreaking moment with a, 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 an amazing farmer uh in her mid-50s that have Gone up against the conglomerates to, you know, beat fresh eggs longer than a six-week shelf life. Uh, these things are six months. Um, and how do you get an egg staying fresh for six months? She smoked the fucking thing. So uh, pretty innovative, creative. And then, you know, going up alongside Janine Ellis. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, <laughs> she's, she's, she's insane.
1: Does doing these sort of shows? I mean, you do so many. I mean, do you find inspiration in in and discover new things when you're doing these sort of shows?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I think you know, like any uh, show, I take I take this shit very seriously. Uh, I had to explain to the contestants at the beginning of this journey, you know, at 27, opening Aubergine, you know, I didn't have a pot to piss in and I had to take a part-time job developing food for fucking Marks & Spencer. I was paid 25 grand a year for Marks & Spencer. That was literally 5,000 pound a year more than I was earning at Aubergine. Wow. To sustain that. And so, a quarter a million dollars going into your business is fucking huge. So, with or without all these cameras and your mics and your yeah. makeup, I'm the real guy. So, uh, I take this shit seriously.
1: This year, you said- Celebrating 25 years of restaurant Gordon Ramsay. How do you reflect on that?
0: Uh, it makes me incredibly proud when I see the sort of, you know, the Claire Smiths and the Matt Abbeys of this world. These guys are powerhouses. They'd never had that opportunity had I not been as generous with my sort of my, my home, my life, my restaurant. So I still had to convince my wife to sell our two-bedroom apartment, you know, to get the deposit, to get the bank, to give us money. So I took a big risk, but I'm done with this bullshit, you know, with, if you're running a three-star Michelin, then you have gotta be cooking the food, that's pants. If you went to Hugo Boss tonight for a fitting to get a brand new suit, you're not gonna ask the fucking lady to Hugo stitch this. And if you're ever fortunate enough to buy a Ferrari, you're not gonna ask if fucking Enzo put the engine in. You're buying quality and that's what these three-star restaurants are. And I butted head, heads with Marco years ago because mm. Marco threw the towel in and didn't want it. And I took the opposite. You know, hand back, give it, give it back to the youngsters that deserve it as much as you do. And so, Alain Ducasse's three three-star Michelin. Do you think there's any customer across those three restaurants every fucking night and say, uh, "Monsieur Bonsoir, uh, <laughs> is Big Al in the kitchen? <laughs> fucking do me a favor. How smart is he, by the way, to have three three-star restaurants and not cook in any of them?" And so stop bitching about the jealousy that you should be behind the stove. The essence is is to, is to ignite your DNA in these individuals and give them the freedom they thought they'd never could have yeah. and become the most unselfish fucker on the planet because you can't get higher. So once as you get there, get others to stand alongside you. And that's why that restaurant's been running for 25 years. So I love going behind the line mm. And I love trying to convince Matt and Claire and Kim my way of thinking, but I don't tell them what to do. Yeah. They're fucking rock stars because of the freedom I gave
1: them. You mentioned your DNA, the culinary DNA, and yes. you were renowned for um, bringing a lighter touch to British cuisine. Yes, um, Take us back to that. How did you find you know, your voice on the plate, you know, what were the steps that you went through to, dis- to discover that?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, with Shannon Bennett the other night and Matt Moran and we were talking about, you know, the sort of heavyweight scenario in the UK with the Marcos and the Nicos and your Pierre Coffmans and the Gavroche and uh, Lord Llam with John Burton Race, etc. And these guys were fucking powerhouses. Having got schooled brilliantly from Marco and Albert, I sensed earlier that Marco had never been to France and so if I was ever gonna leapfrog, and competition's there to be beat, right? I'm there to be beat. I, 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 I love that. I need to do something different than this little, sort of, this little sort of powerhouse foundation in London that never really went outside of the UK. Yeah. So going into Paris, you know, I begged uh, Albert if I can get into Guy Savoy. And Gisawa was this incredible, prolific uh, chef that was sort of, uh, everything was lighter. He was a prolific pastry chef that had elevated into that savoury world, but he was at the two-star level. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the best move is always when these chefs are going from two to three because they think there's another, you know, set of drums they need to play when you get to three-star. The secret of becoming, you know, a a three-star is becoming the fucking best two-star. The secret between becoming you know, a two star is becoming the best one star. There's no set category. You just have to be the best within in order. And then you hit that ceiling. So mm-hmm. um, I realized that Marco had never been to France. And so if I was ever going to come back and compete, you know, on his manner, you know, yeah. in his fucking back garden, then I had to come back with something different. So I did. And I went to Guy Savoir and then on to Robochon. And so coming back at 27, and it was Marco who set up the aubergine deal for me. Yeah. But I realized I was on something unique when Guy Savoir taught me this amazing creme brulee and it was done with UHT milk because it had a higher fat content, so it's set. And Albert Roux said, you never turn a fucking creme brulee out of its mold. No such thing. Don't be so fucking stupid. And then Guy showed me. And it was about this brulee setting in the fridge with a skin that you could turn it out with this skin and then put it onto the bowl and then blowtorch and it sort of melted underneath. Then we had these apple chips and this frozen Granny Smith apple that got turned into this you Granny Smith. So I put that on my menu at Aubergine and of course, you know, within hours it had been on there, Mark was asking for the recipe. So (laughs) my best friend was his pastry chef and lo and behold, after every service, you know, on a Friday or Saturday night, we used to go over to uh, the Oak Room uh, uh, and sit with Marco and lo and behold my fucking desserts are on his menu so uh, I used to laugh and then the other kick in the bollocks was six months later uh, they were featured in his book <laughs> so I knew then this with one dish so then I said right hold on to this stuff you've got something different to what he's been doing for the last 10 years and how do you how do you jump on the same platform of what these guys are doing um, so I paced myself then then I I used to sort of Get the long weekends of bank holidays uh, and you know fly to places like uh, Annecy and Malverra was wow. just coming on the scenes and this was this incredible genius in Haute savoir that was cooking wild but sort of revolutionizing classics into the modern touch and that was a huge inspiration. El Boule had just opened yeah. in a little place called Rosas and I remember going there and taking Heston Blumenthal and you know we were blown away but you don't get it the first time you eat there you've got to go back again a year later to sort of let it resonate and it percolates and all of a sudden the penny drops fuck I get it and so all these things were happening and that's how I sort of separated myself from the competition and, and bounced up, you know, to three stars within two years of opening.
1: You mentioned a little bit earlier about sacrifice and creating Restaurant Gordon Ramsay. You, this year, um, you're celebrating it with a, with an amazing book that will come out shortly. Um, tell us about that sacrifice. I mean, people see the incredible success that you have, but yeah. the beginnings of Restaurant Gordon Ramsay 25 years ago, it, it, it was difficult for you to get it up and running.
0: Yeah, it was laser visioned It was you dial it in, you become the, 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 the most selfish bastard on the planet because you just want utter perfection. And then once you've sort of crafted that level of perfection, then you sort of, you set the tone, you set the bar and you, you sort of, you, you come from that sort of innovation, backed up creative world, and all of a sudden you have to be a conductor. And then you're no longer in the orchestra, you're conducting but then you are conducting like no other. And I don't mean fucking Balling Point was conducting, that was a fucking shit show. Uh, and uh, I, I, I was incredibly vulnerable. And then when you see the sort of the results and you see the good and the bad, you start editing. And when you're on that journey, you haven't got time to edit, but you need to step back. You need to reflect. And so that DNA bedrock was going back to France, standing in there on my day off, turning artichokes for my chef de party in order to garner, you know, his respect. Mm -hmm. And so you sort of, you try to install those little moments that you've been given and you're hoping they pick the baton up and they do. They don't immediately, but they do. But they only come, they only come about every 10 years. And it's like a rare vineyard. And if it wasn't, then there'd be fucking 253 star mission restaurants across the UK. And so you're sort of your Claire's and your Matt's and your Kim's and your Mark Askew's of this world. They're a different breed, man. They are just, yeah, they're 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 mini you. They won't say that publicly, but, you know, secretly, you know, they are, they got it
1: well there's a determination that fire that you've always had but back then when you were aiming for three michelin stars there's a lot of chefs out there that are aiming you know have similar sort of goals now tell us about that sort of moment when you um moved from two to three and when you found out and the impact it had on you
0: yeah the impact was huge very few chefs ever sit down and actually eat their food and if there's one thing I've always done is taught them how to cook first before you eat because you need to know how to cook it perfectly to eat it properly. Yeah. And so it's the wrong way around. And so people think we fuck around when we blind taste that's so We don't. It's a blindfold and we're identifying textures and flavors. So we, we, we went to three stars rapidly because there's a lightness and a, a sort of uh, uh, a prolific flavor profile that was... Harmony, mm. and that was all about that that line. Don't cross that line, and so I always say, still to this day, don't don't get wrapped up in the foo foo. It needs to look aesthetically stunning, but it needs to taste better than it looks. And so that's what we garnered quite early on at food that was sublime, textured, finesse, and six or seven courses without having to feel that one must take to the bed for three or four days after it. And that's that's a hard balance. Yeah. I always say just. Put yourself in the position of the customer. Eat that journey. Don't just take a mouthful. Eat the whole fucking thing, and don't, 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 don't make it clumsy. It needs to. It needs to be cut as slick as you presented it. It needs to. It needs to disintegrate as beautiful as you put it together, and it's all purposely, you know, done. And so yeah that moment of following your food and that leap was quantum for us. I knew we had it in us and I opened my big mouth you know on TV by telling the fucking world that the missionary were in a year before yeah. with some crew and they're filming from outside like fucking idiots with the cameras to the window and we had six French inspectors so you know the French are stiff enough but stick a camera in their ass and they're fucking wooden. <laughs> so uh, I, I i i I do regret that but I look back at it now, and that has just been young, stupid, hungry, focused, and slightly obsessed, which is which which is a healthy thing.
1: Take us to the moment when you did find out about the three Michelin stars. Yeah, so,
0: yeah, I remember that like it was last night. Um, that for me, you know, the restaurant emptied out. There was the editor and the UK inspector. Uh, John Lord's bringing back every plate every napkin I said John Lord, for fuck's sake you know the only thing you haven't brought me back is the toilet paper when they've been at the <laughs> bathroom stop it you know stop over obsessing the guy's coming out in a month's time and it's in print it's under lock and key but there's a safety element about what you've done up until then mm-hmm. and let's not forget you get sort of judged in January what you cooked the year before and so social media wasn't anywhere near as prevalent as it is now so we hung on to everything you know uh I remember the dishes, the ravioli, I remember the the lamb, I remember the sea bass, I remember the souffle, and for everything we did that night, we made double, but for multiple tables, because in three stars, you shouldn't have issues, you shouldn't have imperfections. Um, After that, they asked uh, for a word, you know, and they wanted to meet me in the bar rather than come through to the kitchen, and so there's that sort of real, sort of, almost like we were in slow-mo everything slowed right down and i'm looking at the clock it's 20 past 10 and the table's booked at seven three and a half hours later um uh, no one left in the restaurant and i go out there and you know um take my apron off and then we we sit down and they're talking they're talking they're talking and you're asking all the nices i'm like for fuck's sake tell me please don't ask to go please don't leave you know and then bang they say hey Look, in the forthcoming guide, uh, we're so happy to say that you, you've got three stars. And I still get choked up now because it's like, the moment in time, and everything just stops, the whole, oof, everything just stops right there, and it's in person, and then they're sort of, they're, they're shaking your hands and they're hugging you. I'm getting fucking hugged by a Michelin inspector. Are you kidding me? Um, so, it was just all slow, and just, I couldn't hear anything bar their voices. And then uh, you're like a fucking idiot. I want you to comp the bill. Yeah, the dinner's on me. Uh, no, no, we're paying. And so um, I think more than anything, they were just proud to announce that. And when you think about their job, they don't get around the world that often to tell the uniqueness of three stars. Mm. And they left and they went running into the kitchen and, uh, you know, just, yeah, I don't know, there's just sort of not just the pressure. But everything just, everything made sense. It was a combination of just everything sort of coming together. And it just made absolute, utter perfect sense. And then for 10 days, you know, we had to sit there and sort of keep it as a surprise until the guide was launched. So yeah, incredible. I mean, literally incredible, but John Claude, you know, the team, everyone, you know, it 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 was just a unique moment. And it was like winning the World Cup uh, and then, of course, you know, a year later, you happen to fucking defend it every year. And we've done that now for 22 years. But that's that's not me. That's the team. That's your, your figureheads. And so the reason why it stayed that long, that good, is the ones that have been part of it have gone on and been as successful as me. And there's an insight to yeah.
1: cherry-picking talent. You mentioned the importance of delegation, and that's been the backbone of your success as well. But how how do you do that what's the systems that you put in place you know there's heaps of operators out there that want to move from 1 to 2 to 3 to 10 venues but it's you know how do you how do you do that
0: yeah it's a really good question and you honestly think that i'm that fucking stupid to tell you that now <laughs> you <laughs> have to politely, i'm taking notes you have to politely go and fuck yourself <laughs> in a really nice way and i'll tell those individuals that deserve to know that and i'm fucked if i'm sharing that with a beard man <laughs> that looks like father christmas and they are sender the nowhere
1: so no that's one of the nicest ways you've referred to me no, i
0: just i love you dearly but you have to go and fuck yourself Sorry. Well, and secondly, um, those that have been patient in the wings, to unveil that now and give it to you because you've got a shit-hot podcast, <laughs> you really do have to go and fuck yourself.
1: I think we've got our grab. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, just, I love you dearly, but uh, I think moments like that are critical to the new wave of talent coming through. And secondly, we're, we're moving. You yeah, we sort of, we... we we move forward at a pace and there's an R&D team that is developing as we speak. And so uh, those are secrets that are shared with very few individuals and, you know, I have every intention of keeping that with them.
1: Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is you're, you know, you're probably one of the recognised most recognized people on the planet, not just in the food industry, but just generally on the planet. How do, how do you manage everything that you do you know, and keep that balance as well. And because you know, we've we've caught up quite a few times. The the Gordon Ramsay that I know is not necessarily the one we see on Kitchen Nightmares. Um, how do you how do you deal with that public perception? You know, and juggle real life as well.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, listen, I think you know, Kitchen Nightmares is a is a is a is a is a, is a tough, shitty environment sometimes it's about fixing the family first before you fix the restaurant and that's the devastating thing about that uh, program but I can't win either way there's a huge budget that goes into these businesses I have a huge team around me that helps create some really exciting ideas and then when you leave them with the prescription to get their shit together when they do it you don't get praise. When they failed, you get blamed. So you're fucked either way. So what I do do is go in and tell the truth. And I brutally tell the truth. So there's no... There's no... There's no... There's no ass-kissing. You know, it's brutal. But let's not forget they invite me in. I don't fucking rock up with a camera like I've just booked a table or two and pretended not to film the shithole and fucking Stuart Little scrambling, doing press-ups on his back in the fucking kitchen underneath the fucking stove that clapped out and hasn't worked for six fucking months. So I, you know, I do, I, I do take these things seriously. So it's hard, isn't it? Because you you want them to work. But I think that's the one thing that I get upset with in our business that Unlike medicine or law, anyone can open a restaurant. And so these fucking dinner parties that are hosted in these neighborhoods, when they say, hey, Huck, your food's amazing. You should open a restaurant. And they think that this stupid fucking dinner party is the basis of creating a successful restaurant. It's chalk and cheese. Okay, that's like getting your Sunday morning football team to sit in Pep Guardiola's fucking Man City's team ahead of the Champion League's final and say, let's swap the locals in for you know some of uh, this uh, this group of sunday league footballers because they're passionate about football it, it 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 is an industry that needs to be understood and worked at every level before you go anywhere near business
1: you you have so many different Sort of arms to what you do with the television side and the books and, and the restaurants. You know, the last couple of years have been pretty tricky for restaurants, you know, pretty tricky for everyone on the planet, but you know, there's slim margins in restaurants. So has it changed your approach to kind of what you do with the restaurants or refocus things across? Uh, That's
0: a good question. Um, has it changed? I think it's, if anything, it's given uh, credit to the traceability. And there was a sort of over glamorous side before COVID hit, that restaurants are getting a little bit carried away. Multiple restaurants are just going menu only. We're gonna tell you what you're eating and no choice, but we're gonna charge you a fortune. And so those places can take credit in remote locations. But when we're in a cosmopolitan city, you can't dictate to the customer that there's no choice. Yeah. Uh, and very few get away with it. And so there's a level of arrogance that was seeping into the industry that was getting a little bit highfaluted. So I think it's been a welcomed, humble approach now. And when the fellow scene came in, it was a godsend. But what it did do was remove the shit and it sort of cleared the decks. And I, I've never had any issues with, you know, continuous investments and putting money back in to the business, having made money. But it, it's a tough game. It's a really tough game. The margins are tight. You know, the employment laws are stronger and better than ever before. Um, and that's to the advantage. But I always say to the youngsters today, is it depends how quick you want to learn. And so I remember Marco opening up from five and a half day a week to six day a week, and it was to generate more money for the new restaurant. And we were fucked already, by the way. And on Saturday morning, we used to come in at 10 o'clock anyway, that was our sleeping. But when he announced he's opening on Saturday morning, there's no sleeping on Saturday. Uh, we used to stand just prepping, and we'd stand and literally sort of nod off in the prep. you know, you're that fucked. And sixteen hours a day, eighteen hours a day, then was just a given you just you did it, yeah, you just out of respect, you did it, Gavroche was the same, Gavroche was brutal, but we had weekends off at gavroche, and so you know I look at the hours now and you know how they taper and uh, how that mental strength is so important, and so you just got to manage your expectations and whether it's eight or ten hours uh it's absolutely down to them, and it's got to be so um finding that balance mm. and everyone thinks you've got that balance but you, you, you work for that balance no one no one hands it to you on a plate and so um, you still need to put it in and the more you put it in the more you're going to get out and it's always interesting when you see clock watchers and they're looking at the time and shit you know can I, can I go now you know but if you go to a football training ground or an AFL training ground or you know a basketball training ground no one's watching the clock they're fucking experts and they're driven and it's exactly the same as it is in the industry to get to the very top you need to be focused like a fucking
1: athlete how do you how do you maintain that drive like what what drives you I mean you, you have so many things going on how, how do you maintain it and where do you get that drive from
0: I started at 27 when I opened an aubergine and I had three in the kitchen and four in the dining room then I got asked by the partners to take out a loan to put this rag wall sort of Mediterranean shit paint color on the walls to make it look like it was in the south of fucking France, we're in the back of Fulham. And then on the bar, they had a pay phone that you had to put pound coins in. Do you have any idea how fucking embarrassed I was for <laughs> customers to use my phone and then pay? So what I'm trying to say is that I I started with nothing. Yeah. We started with nothing, and so everything that we have has been worked for, but I still remind myself how hard I worked back then. Um, And, you know, people think that you're brash and you're cocky and you're super confident, but uh, I just know my shit. And I've spent two and a half decades getting to where I am today. That's the difference, and there's no... There's no I deserve, there's no I want, there's no, mm. there's no entourage. It's just hard work with an amazing team and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on it. I stay in front of it. I, I stay in front. Of I was in a Filipino restaurant, uh, Saraya, a couple mm. of nights back.
1: Yeah, amazing.
0: It's fucking Beautiful. And Justin, a uh, social media uh, guy, was doing a fucking uh, bone marrow louche where they were blow torching this fucking bone. It was like something out of the Flintstones. <laughs> and then they were pouring rum in this thing. And then he was like edging down and this fucking rum was like flambeing, and his uh, fucking face was getting burnt off. And so, and then I, I, I revert back to the activists that stormed my restaurant a couple of months back yeah. and were upset about meat eaters. There was a couple that traveled all the way from Singapore to meet their Australian relatives uh, to celebrate their wedding. Wow. And the restaurant got shut down. And so I'm just sort of trying to visualize, you've got every right to feel and, and, and show your desires to protest. And I get that. But disrupting so many people's enjoyment is fucking wrong. Yeah. And then I was looking at Justin with his, vodka, with his rum bone marrow louche and thinking fuck if any vegans or vegetarians are outside this restaurant looking at him they're going to smash the window to get in and and ram that bone where the sun don't shine and so that's the comparison we've got in the industry it's so bizarre but everyone's vying for voices and social media is this incredible amazing intrusion and yet you know let let businesses function and I'm 62 minutes into this dinner and food was arriving and um, the fucking chef asked for the ta- They kicked me off the table because they needed the table back and I was so happy <laughs> to get kicked off the table and then I asked for the bill. No, no, it's not. No, no, I need the bill. I need the bill. So they need to understand. I've been in those shoes. I, I know what it's like to have an empty table and a no-show uh, and I know how fucking hard it is to make money out of great food because you don't do it for money. You do it because it's all... Prolific enjoyment, and there's a cost to pay for that enjoyment. And so, uh, yeah, I'll never forget that fucking bone marrow <laughs> I'm thinking about trying that when I want to get back to London. Uh, a bone marrow and they're flombing the fucking rum, and there's like this lava that is just like engulfed, running into his little beautiful jaw. I'm thinking, dude, you're gonna go up in flames right now. And so, it was beautiful to see. How great was that? Can you imagine? I want to do one. No, but in the middle of Mayfair, I'm doing a bone marrow louche and we're pouring rum inside a fucking it sounds bone. It's like an
1: Olympic event.
0: And we're setting fire to it, and this customer's looking around at me like, I'm like, it was beautiful. I was like a pig in shit. It was just one of those beautiful memories. And I think that's the, the nice sort of freedom that food has here in Australia. Yeah. That connected to the indigenous movements and then the sort of power of this nature that is this incredible enhancement that is natural and was here way before we were, way before mum, you know, pushed me out. It was, it was incredible.
1: The last 25 years with restaurant restaurant Gordon Ramsay, amazing. But, you know, your kids have grown up through all of that period of time and um, you've, built this amazing sort of empire across the globe. Looking back on it, what, what are you sort of most proud of over those 25 years with the restaurant?
0: Uh, I think the family, you know, everyone thinks that you've got kids and they're spoiled. My kids are not fucking spoiled. <laughs> I have a son who's a Royal Marine Commando that's jumped into a salary of 18,000 pound a year uh, to become one of the most elite forces in wow. the world. Uh, Megan is in the police force uh, and Holly's into her fashion and Tilly's studying psychology and she's constantly banging on about a case study with me. politely tell her to go and fuck herself again. So uh, I, uh, I'm i incredibly proud. Uh, I'm slightly nervous that no one's taking over. <laughs> I'm sticking Oscar in bed with whisks and fucking wooden spoons coming out of his pyjamas. <laughs> and I'm getting these little sort of teddy bears dressed up in fucking chefs. And hey, here's little Marco Pierre White. And here's a little Jamie Oliver. <laughs> you know, uh, here's a little pot-smoking Gina De Campo. Um, so, I mean, pots and pots and pans. Yeah, um, yeah of, course, of course. So I... Uh, I'm, 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 I'm incredibly proud of them because they think they're all privileged and yes whilst they grew up in one house and I grew up in 15 fucking houses and seven of those were caravans so I I, I can't be any prouder yeah. now to see how independent they've become and this nepotism and, 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 and the shit they take about well it's easy for you it's not it's actually harder because they're ca- they're creating their own way yeah. And I'm not funding that. There's no fucking way I'm funding the Royal Marines. And there's no <laughs> way, you know, I did that course. Uh, and these these guys were turning up in these fucking white vests and I thought, ah, this is gonna be a it's gonna be a fucking doddle. You know, I've done Iron Man, I can do this. Well they beat the shit out of me. Do you know what I mean? I mean they beat the shit out of me so badly that, you know, I was on my fucking hands and knees. They put me in this sheep dip and it's about the size of this table, and they get a <laughs> I scruff of the neck and then they fucking take take a big deep breath off load your burger and your weapon, and they shove you <laughs> under this fucking tunnel. And I remember going down uh, underneath this tunnel, big deep breath, big deep breath, and this fuck grabbed me at the back of my neck, and it was like a rugby tackle from behind, and he fucking stuck me under, <laughs> and the bastard held me down there for 30 seconds before he let me go, so I'm like, fuck, oh, my head's no. banging against the concrete. I'm like, shit, shit, shit. And then there's someone else at the front that grabs you and he pulls you out. Well, you know, I thought I was a goner. Do you know, as <laughs> I came out. And then you slapped and then you get on the next part of the course. So yeah, they let me know there, there and then just how tough they were. And I think that must have been, you know, a moment in history that is like, no matter who you are, how successful you are, yeah. if you're gonna come into the Royal Marine Commando Center and you wanna do the course, then you yeah, know, we're gonna fucking show you how hard we are. And so I was I've never been so polite about these men in these white <laughs> These white string vests with like fucking coffee stains down them. It was, it was funny, but my, hat's, my, my, my hat goes out to them. Elite force that, yeah, just makes me incredibly proud.
1: You, um, you've been in Australia to film Food Stars. What, mm-hmm. what, what's on the agenda for the next sort of year or so with you?
0: Um, every time I do a sort of shiny glossy thing and Aria and the pop-up was sort of groundbreaking with Matt Moran mm. and uh, Matt Abe, that was just fucking beautiful. I have to go to the the coal face, mm. so we 're off to Galithia, and we 're going to be absolutely down a fucking cliff, whoa, gathering barnacles and breaththa We're off to cook in Jordan uh, and and, and unearth some incredible food. And then we're sort of doing drift dives uh, for these incredible scallops. You know, a sort of five kilometers, six kilometers uh, Russia waters uh, in the coast of Ireland. Wow. So when I do the glossy stuff, I need to do the shit and stick because that (laughs) just then kicks you back into touch with being back at Harveys, you know, prepping a leaked tureen and on your day off on a Sunday night, you have to catch a cab over to say, take it off press yeah. and to fold it properly before Marco comes the next day. So I need that. I need that connect. Yeah. I can't let go of that. I, I think that's the chef in me, I think. Um, and then, um, then we're off. Then it's the boat in the water And I'm not talking about a fucking 40-meter fucking super yacht. I'm talking about a dinghy. It's a a 10-meter rib. It's got two, 300-horsepower engines. And we go airborne. It'll be bass fishing. It'll be diving. It'll be uh, surfing. A couple of nights uh, overnight, camping in the Isles of Scilly. And they just sat on the water, just peaceful, swimming, catching, fishing and uh yeah I, i've stopped trying to compete with jack now trying to beat him he's like a fucking dolphin <laughs> so you know whilst i've got a size 15 feet and i swim fucking brilliantly but this guy is just a beast so i'll pretend to sort of try and keep up with him but unbeknown to him i cut corners and sort of as opposed to going across the sort of estuary you know point we have a point a point b point c then i'll fucking cut across the middle and sort of just tag behind him and Sit on on the heels of his
1: feet. (laughs) Doing all of these crazy adventures, do you ever sort of get scared or or shit yourself in the predicament that you're in? Is there any.
0: Uh, I think the abseiling bit, when you've got sort of, you know, a 200 foot drop, Mm. sort of swinging, and you've got to get these barnacles quickly before this surge comes back up, you sort of tend to sort of think about the danger and then you sort of you've got to get rid of it I always say it's a sort of three second rule it comes in one it sits two and three it's gone and so I'm very strong at that and I think crossing the line at uh, Ironman Hawaii yeah, and doing a sort of 3.8k swim 180k bike and followed by a and you know losing 27 pounds you sort of you tolerate wow. acceptance your mind just becomes so fucking strong mm. that you're sort of you're not immune to it. I don't walk around thinking we are immune, but uh, yeah, abseiling from a helicopter into the jungles in Guyana, onto a fucking bed of sand with uh, giant caiman. Yeah, I had no issues, but uh, you do think about it. Yeah, I suppose you do. But I, yeah, I, I, I sort of, yeah, I get my shit together.
1: Well, you're always pushing the limits. Like, mm. but what is it that you love about all these things that you do? Mm -hmm.
0: Doing things for the first time and doing things that I could only have dreamt of and having access to areas where food's connected that is just, it's unique. I also love sort of tapping into those corners of the world where we're seeing talent that no one's heard of. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm getting schooled and I don't know whether that's the Scottish in me or whether it's mum that installed that level of work ethic. I just love being schooled. And I don't care who it is, whether 25 or 35 or 55, if they've got something that I haven't got and they know about food, I want to fucking know that. I want to know what they've got because yeah. that's going to make me a better chef. And I don't know where it's going, by the way. <laughs> I don't bring up man and say, hey, I've got this new idea for fucking giant Cayman and we're going to take the tail, marinate it uh, and stick it uh, in a brioche bun. Uh, I don't know where it's going. But somewhere down the line, it will, it will come to, to fruition. Somewhere on a menu.
1: Gordon, as always, absolute pleasure to catch up. You always keep me on my toes. Um, Please keep in touch and we'll hopefully catch up again soon.
0: Go and fuck yourself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, mate. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep.